Hey, Cinefans, it's your resident wrestler, yes sir, Jastin Taylor here, and I'm back again for another episode of Solo Slayers to record um, and just talk about my likes, dislikes, and everything in between for three films that I definitely thought deserved some time and attention and some reviews from us here at Cinema Slayers, and those three films are going to be Dolomite Is My Name, The Irishman, and Little Women. Now, um, unfortunately, some of my Cinema Slayers colleagues did not get to see these films. Two of them are actually on uh, Netflix, by the way. And then one of them just recently came out uh, here in movie theaters, that being Little Women. But I thought that these movies were all great in their own way. And I just thought that they deserved at least some comments from one of us, just so that you know that one of us saw those and wanted to put some opinions out there um, about these films. So I thought that it was worth the time to do that. The first film that I'm going to talk about is Dolomite Is My Name. Um, This is directed by Craig Brewer and it stars Eddie Murphy and Wesley Snipes as kind of the two main stars of this film. And then you've got some other cool people in here. Chris Rock, of course. I mean, Chris Rock is hilarious. Love his stand-up. Love a lot of his stand-up comedy. And Eddie Murphy, too. He's another one that just is a genius when it comes to stand up. And uh, Craig Robinson, uh, the guy from uh, The Office and other movies is in here. And oh, and I like Craig Robinson, man. He's he's really cool. Snoop Dogg is in here. Mike Epps. So just a lot of your prominent black comedians, black funny men. Quite a few of them encompass the cast of this movie, which I think they were all great choices here. But back to the whole comedian thing and Eddie Murphy. Uh, Eddie Murphy is uh, is another one of those actors to me, kind of like I speak about him in the same light that I do Adam Sandler. Eddie Murphy has always kind of been um, a, a comedian turned actor that I always felt had great acting talent. I just don't always feel that his choices are always the best and a lot of and there are quite a few Eddie Murphy movies that I can't that I can't lie. I do not really like them. But when he really tries and when the material is right and Eddie Murphy goes all in on his acting ability, um he can be one of the best. He can be one of the best people acting. And I always like to see him in a role that suits him and fits him and it's a little more serious. Um, if you haven't seen him in Dream Girls, that was a great movie where Eddie Murphy has a great performance, and I believe he was nominated for that performance. So, in that same light, I can say that in this film, Dolomite is my name, where Eddie Murphy plays the performer Rudy Ray Moore. Oh my goodness, Eddie Murphy is just amazing here. He's so charismatic and entertaining and just just downright funny as this character. And it was almost as if 
Eddie Murphy was meant to play this guy. But Rudy Ray Moore, just to give some background about him, and this is based on a true story. So it was about this person who was a struggling artist. Uh, he made music, a musical artist, but he was struggling. That didn't really get anywhere. And now he finds himself, he's older in his late 30s, early 40s. And it just doesn't seem like... Um, his music art is working out. And and this is set in like 1970s Los Angeles, which the the director of this film, Craig Brewer, does a great job of giving us that aesthetic. And the music is really great here. All of the stuff that you're used to hearing from the, the 1970s. I mean, you name a band, you hear it. There's stuff from Marvin Gaye. There's stuff from The Temptations. I mean, all of that stuff is present in this movie so it definitely has a great soundtrack to it uh to give you that 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 70s and 80s aesthetic that that this movie does carry while we're following this rudy ray moore character but he's a struggling musician and things didn't quite work out and he works at a radio station but he also uh moonlights as an mc for his friend ben taylor played by craig robinson the guy from the office and everything who's very funny here and you know long story short rudy ray moore likes to when he introduce when he introduces different acts and stuff like that at um ben taylor's club he likes to get up there and do like a little comedy routine or do a little routine of his before the uh the the the, the artist comes up to do their routine and he wants to do this comedy routine and uh ben is telling him no nah, man you can't do it you're not that funny and a few times he's tried it and it just hasn't worked out and he's down on his luck and just as fate would have it there's this poor guy that that often comes into the radio store where he works at in the daytime and through striking a car and, and and him and this guy don't have the worst relationship the guy kind of smells bad and the guy kind of comes in and he's always speaking gibberish and causing a ruckus so rudy tries to kind of push him out and everything but on this particular day the you know the 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 planets just aligned and he decides to kind of talk to this guy and so they have so they they talk to each other and he's doing and and this old poor man is doing this character this this Dolomite character and the guy and it's just a hilarious kind of persona that he's come up with this real cool suave guy that that just talks a big game and talks about how nobody can take him on and every girl wants him and every uh and everybody wants to be him and it's just this real suave just over the top super persona almost kind of like a shaft or something like that just overconfident and he's always got these whimsical ways of telling stories and they always rhyme it, it reminded me a lot of something like Muhammad Ali or something like that you know like he's t telling all these stories and like you know if the girl uh, <clears throat> you know, have no fear. Dolomite is here. And, you know, um, <laughs> it's okay. If she doesn't want me, then she'll want me later. 
and, and you can put that on a piece of paper. It's like he just does all these like crazy little rhymes and all this stuff like that. But he always tells an entertaining story with rhyming. And even though that, that example I gave is really poor, it's hilarious in the film. Like he does all these little rants and rhymes. And so Rudy Ray Moore hears this and it gives him this idea. And he's like, what if I took that idea, turned it into like a persona and just performed it myself, put my own little spin on it, put my own creativity on it and kind of revitalize that act, but do it for the stage. So he ta he embraces this Dolomite character that he heard about from this poor guy and he starts writing this material and making sure it rhymes and everything like that. And so one night uh, to um, his friend Ben's uh, chagrin, he decides to just... Uh, throw on the wig. He comes dressed up looking crazy. Everybody in the club is looking at him. And that's one of the keys to this, to this gimmick, if you will, uh, which is more of a wrestling term for like a persona or a character. But, uh, but yeah, like everybody's looking at him and he's got the big fro hair and just all these elaborate colored suit and all this stuff. So he just instantly had people looking at him and that's part of this whole persona too is that it's eye catching so he already kind of had the attention and the curiosity of everybody that was there at the nightclub so then finally he gets up on stage and he starts doing this dolomite act and it's an immediate hit one thing leads to another and the next thing you know he's making those records he's making the, the that record that he never got to make but he's doing it as dolomite and actually selling it and it's basically a comedy routine on record and if i'm not mistaken i believe this is one of the first kinds of like recordings that somebody sold like this where basically it was a comedy routine but he rhymed and everything like that and almost kind of sold it like it was an album or like it was music different things like that now of course Dolomite like we said he's a struggling artist down on his luck doesn't make a lot of money so when this re when the recordings of this act is made he's selling this out of the back of his car this guy has it tough but but he's determined to get his message out there and he's selling it out of the back of his car. And then, of course, um, it garners some attention and he's really popular. The next thing you know, he's in a recording artist studio and now he's uh, recording a record. And that even lead, and then it, he's even increasing in popularity and he brings some friends on board like Ben Taylor and uh, Mike Epps' character. He brings all of these other friends on board and he has these funny conversations with these friends back and forth uh, Snoop Dogg in this is a radio DJ who he kind of talks to at the beginning of the film and he's trying to get the Snoop Dogg to play his musical albums and Snoop Dogg is like nah man I'm not going to play that man that stuff is way too old it's not nuanced or anything like that but it's funny because after his Dolomite act takes off now Snoop is like hey man we got Dolomite in the studio and he's interviewing him and he plays some of his stuff for him and stuff so they had a good relationship and that and that was very cool. And I like how even though like Snoop is one of those characters that tells Dolomite no 
at the beginning of the film, but then later on in the movie, he kind of has to eat his words and say, hey man, hey Rudy, you know, you're a pretty cool dude and this is really cool, this Dolomite stuff that you're doing. I'm glad that they didn't make a big deal out of that. It wasn't this big moment where Snoop had to get on his hands and knees and go, oh, I was so wrong about you. It was played cool and I appreciate that. And that's just one thing that I can say about this film is that everything just uh, the right decisions were made with the script just when things needed to be funny they were but when Eddie Murphy needed to add a measure of seriousness or when Eddie Murphy needed to be determined when something wasn't working out he was and it just has and it moves so briskly like the pace is great and it just had such an attitude and a charismatic presentation to it that you're never bored through this movie it's intriguing throughout uh one thing leads to another and dolomite and its friends now he's a little more successful the records have been selling of his act of his dolomite act have been selling and then it bring and then he gets invited to go see a movie and it's supposed to be this big comedy movie and it's a white uh, comedy film and he's like oh man it's got this great reputation they saying that it's the funniest movie in years and it's so hilarious because him and his black friends are sitting in this theater full of white people and the comedy is slapstick and it's kind of just not the more vulgar kind of comedy that Dolomite is used to doing. And, 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 and I think that that's also worth to say, like his comedy routine is super vulgar and there's a lot of dick jokes and this, that, and the other and pussy this and dick that and F this and fuck that. But it's a very hilarious, funny routine. And if you know anything about Eddie Murphy and some of the comedy stuff that he used to do, Eddie Murphy raw is one. That's one of my favorite comedic stand-up uh, shows of all time that I've seen. And I mean, if you if you know about Eddie Murphy Raw, then you know what I'm talking about. So this Rudy Ray Moore guy and Eddie Murphy, I mean, they're almost like kindred spirits, man, because this just seemed right up Eddie Murphy's alley. So when he's doing these acts and everything, you're just laughing and Eddie Murphy just feels so at home doing these routines and he just embodies this character and you get the feeling that this very much was his Eddie Murphy story too with the ups and downs of being a comedian and an actor so I think it just culminates into a great film uh so like I was saying he's sitting here watching this white comedy and it's just so unfunny to them and he's like man but but it teaches him a lesson and he gets inspired and there's this part where he's kind of looking up at the uh, projection area and he sees the light from the pro from the film uh, from the film screen beaming down onto the uh, projector screen and that's playing the movie and he looks up there and he kind of just has this moment of an epiphany and he goes man if I can get on that screen if I can make movies if I can get on that screen then I will have really accomplished something we we would take the next step if I could get into cinema. So then he goes on this arduous journey to try to get his first movie made. And of course, that proves to be a lot harder than he thought. The the financial backers that he had with his uh, with his Dolomite comedy records, they're not 
so confident in him to get this movie done, but he but he goes to them to borrow money. He goes to his family to borrow his mother to borrow money, and she's a good person. I like her in this film uh, as well. She's played by um. Oh my gosh, where is she? Man, I don't see her here in the casting credits that are right in front of me, but. She was great in this. Uh, she, she was really good in this, and I'll and I'll get her name and come uh, back to that here in a moment. I'll circle back to her in a moment. But she's really great, and I hate that I can't. I don't have her. Man, honestly, let me just find it because I don't want to like forget to say something about her because she's great in this. Uh, Lunell, yeah, and she played, I'm sorry, not his mother, but his aunt, and she does a great job in here of just being endearing and caring about Rudy and wanting him to succeed, and I think that all of that definitely comes across in the scenes that she has with her, so... Uh, and also along the way, uh, Dolomite, before this film gets made, he meets uh, Lady Reed, who's played by Devon Joy Randolph. And man, she was great, too, as just kind of like this funny lady. And she would just be blunt and honest and tell these stories. But she's kind of a, a bigger, kind of heavier set lady. So she didn't quite have that confidence and Dolo and uh Rudy Ray is like, no man, look look what I do on stage. I play a persona, I play a character, and I really think you should give this a try. I think you have something, but you just don't see it. But I see it, but you just don't see it yet. And sure enough, Lady Reed starts doing comedy routines and she's funny and people like her. So now he's even got a female partner in crime and everything's going great. They And so he gets the financial backing that he needs to try to produce this, this film. But he needs actors to star in the film. You need um, people to, uh, you need cameramen to film this. You know, there are a lot of, a director, there are a lot of things you need that go into making a movie. So the latter half of this movie is really about just the hardships of trying to bring his vision and his film to life. And, uh, along the way, we meet Wesley Snipes' character, Derville De Urville Martin. And man, the, the, the funny thing about this person is both of these people, uh, this is based on a true story, and Martin actually existed too. And he was actually a co-star in Rosemary's Baby, which was a popular movie. So he was really feeling himself whenever uh, Eddie Murphy, Rudy Ray Moore approaches him. So when Rudy is like, hey man, Mr. Martin, you know, we want you to be in this film and everything. At first, he's offended because of course, you know, Rudy Ray has never made any films. This guy's worked with real directors, kind of really worked with Hollywood people and stuff like that, and he's kind of offended. But on the second attempt, uh, Rudy is like, okay, man, what if I let you direct the film? Would you come on and do that? And so, the opportunity to direct kind of entices Wesley Snipes to the project. And Wesley Snipes is just a, is just a joy to watch in this because he plays something that I've never ever seen him play. I mean, most of the time, Wesley Snipes is like your quintessential tough guy. He's good at playing that tough guy. He's done a lot of action movies, and he's done some romance stuff, too. You know, Wesley Snipes has definitely been consistent throughout his career, but this uppity 
movie star who just is all is way more artistic than the rest of them and i guess the rest of them just kind of tend to be more street or ghetto however you want to say it but him being this kind of uppity artistic black guy and him being like man uh i just don't understand some of the comedy of this i don't understand what you're trying to say here but i'm gonna go ahead and i'm gonna try to do this i'm gonna try to uh direct this film anytime him and 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 rudy ray clashed it was great stuff man and eddie and uh wesley snipes just does such a great job as this character who is it just thinks he's bigger than this project and thinks he's more dignified than what they're doing in this black exploitation film but he's still along for the ride and it's great i i really enjoyed wesley snipes here i thought this was a brilliant turn for him on a character he's never actually played like this. Um, another person that was great in this, Keegan-Michael Kay, who plays uh, Jerry Jones in this film. No, not the Dallas Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones. But Jerry Jones is a guy, is a, is a playwright, and he's written all of these different stories and things like that. He was a local playwright in Los Angeles that was pretty popular. So Rudy Ray approaches him about writing the script for the film. So this kind of shows you how this comes together. You've got your director and your writer, and for his part, uh, the guy that plays Nick in this movie, Cody Smith McPhee, is our camera operator and our uh, cameraman, and he has different a crew of people that come on with him, and they're kind of. Uh, like film students so they're not like the best he's got some skill but they're like students so it's funny so they don't have all the greatest equipment they uh um but uh, they do the best that they can for Rudy Ray Moore in this. And every time they're interacting with each other, Eddie Murphy's interacting with them or uh, Jerry Jones is interacting with them or Derville Martin is interacting with them, trying to direct something and, the, and them going, what now? What do you want in the shot and stuff like that? I just really think that this really works. And the cool thing about when the film is being made is they also talk about how there's some of that pressure in Hollywood to make it more Hollywood, to make things kind of make more sense. And then I love how uh, Rudy Ray Moore realizes in making this film that, look, this needs to be more my personality. This needs to be more my presentation. This needs to be funny. Like this film should make people laugh. It shouldn't just be all serious and all blood and guts and stuff. If anything, it should make people laugh and I love there was this scene that really just kind of brings that home where he's debating on how to do this sex scene with one of the actresses and of course this is one of those black exploitation films where you know uh, he wants the, the the black people to appear and be as strong as possible in the movie and of course the white people are the bad guys and stuff like that so of course there's this scene where he has to have sex with this white woman and it's funny because people like uh, Craig Robinson's character, Ben Taylor, and people like and Mike Epps are like, man, are you ready to do this sex scene? Do you know what you're going to do? And she's a credible actress. Do you are you ready to do that? And he's like, I don't know, man. What am I supposed to do? And he's like, man, it's got to be good. You know, it's got to be a sex scene. You know, it's got to look like you got to make love to that woman. You might have to just do it for real if you can't act it out and do it. And he was like, man, and he was really like. 
like stressing over this sex scene and how to approach it. Then he realizes, man, this is Dolomite. Like this should be funny. This shouldn't be some serious sex scene. And it just hits him. I got to do this my way, the way that my persona, my Dolomite character would do this. And what ensues is just hilarity because he's got this girl and he says, okay, I want the bed to shake and I want the, the bed to fall apart and the roof to just come off of the 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 ceiling and fall into the bed and all this crazy stuff happen uh and the and you know and i want furniture moving back and forth so it's just so completely over the top and stupid and at the end of the scene you know she's like oh dolomite give me more give me more whatever and as they're humping up and down the mirrors and dressers are moving four and five inches and it's just so crazy and then at the end the roof falls on top of them and after it's over everyone just burst out laughing and Dolomite uh, Rudy Ray Moore is just sitting there laughing too and everyone including uh uh, Mr. Martin, who really is uppity this whole time, his screenwriter, everyone just burst out in laughter. And to me, that was just one of the best things about this film is that it just showed the importance of having not only that originality, but having, but bringing yourself to whatever you're doing, whatever your passion is and whatever your project is and believing in what you have. And so we get to the end of this film, not to say too much about it, but when we, we arrive to the end of this film, um, what winds up happening is, so the film does wind up being made. And the interesting thing is, is that it, this, this movie even goes into the difficulties that it must have existed back then, even after the film is made, even after it's uh, on, a, on a film reel and everything. There's still a difficulty in getting it sold. There's still a difficulty in getting the proper financial backing and everything like that. So Dolomite had already put a lot of his own money, own resources and different things into this. And it was hard to get a distributor to put this in a movie theater. And it's difficult. And he um, and there's one point where he practically gives up on it and it's just a movie that he has but he hasn't been able to get it in a movie theater so i just love how uh it showcased this how it showcased how difficult this was for this person and he's happens to be um in a, the radio station for another uh, radio jockey chris rock's character and this time chris rock tells him hey i know a guy that lives um on this part of california and he's got a movie theater maybe he will be willing to just put it in one of his uh one of his theaters and just play it there so dolomite reaches out to this guy and sure enough they're fans of him and his dolomite routines and everything like that and they agree to play the movie so finally after all of this hardship and red tape and trying to get it out there and everything he gets one theater showing to 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 show it in so he has the chris rock jockey do the <clears throat> advertising on the radio and say hey y'all got to get down here at seven o'clock at this theater there's going to be um a one-time one and only showing of dolomite blah 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 and so he does this and the film 
actually sells out. The film sells out. People remembered him from his albums that he's comedic albums that he sold. And he has a very good turnout for this film. And while and when he's there, people are watching the film and everybody is laughing. And it and it's just one of those classic black exploitation films where it's really hokey and you know he's doing karate chops and knocking people out with stupid looking karate chops and kicks and there's an army of white guys that runs up to him and he uh, beats down every single one of them and then there's stupid lines like yeah what now and he shoots the guy or whatever the sex scene with the falling roof is in there and the crowd is just having a wonderful time and they're laughing and uh, and all he sees is people laughing and just having the best time and it's funny because the 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 guy Chris Rock's friend the the radio jockey's friend who kind of put this in the theater he sees everybody laughing and he goes man it seems like they think that this movie is funny but was it supposed to be funny it looks kind of serious with blood and guts and punching and kicking and somebody is kidnapped and all of this are they supposed to be laughing and he said of course they are and he was just so overjoyed that they were entertained by his film and the film did so well that he actually got a wider release he actually got that company that turned him down earlier came back and said look we saw the numbers that you had at this theater I want to take this on and give it a wider release and of course uh, so th so now he's going to have like a real grand opening and everybody is there. All of his friends, all the director, Wesley Snipes, uh, D Devon Joy Randolph, Lady Reed is there. Everybody is there for this grand opening. And, 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 and what was just a great ending to this film? The grand opening has happened. There's tons, there's thousands of people lined up to see this Dolomite grand premiere. And they walk up and they're just so amazed because they feel like big deal movie stars and everything. And it was great, crazy because on the way to the theater, they had read um, the, the newspaper had come out with some reviews of it. And, and, the, and the critics were already saying that it's a terrible movie. It's just awful. And it just is you know so cheesy and corny and everything like that which is kind of what it was supposed to be and I love that Dolomite was kind of like well screw him man the, the people had fun and that's what matters and I think that that does reign true sometimes sometimes we do get caught up in critic reception of films and everything like that but ultimately it's the fans opinion that matter it's the fans that spend the money and if it and then normally and I've seen it happen a lot where a movie will get reviewed badly whether it deserved it at the time or not and it is the fans that make it a, cl a cult classic it is the fans that can give a film its classic status so I like the resolve there from the characters on the way to the premiere. They didn't really let that hinder them, although there were some negative reviews already out about the film. And when they get to there, to, 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 the, to the theater location for the premiere, and they see the thousands of people lined up and can't wait to see this film, uh, it's a great because as they're walking in, Dolomite sees all of these people still in line and he asks, Hey, what's going on? And he said, Hey, well, man, they're going to have to, they're all going to have to wait about an hour and a half, two hours for the next showing, man. We filled up the theater. So these people are going to have to wait. 
And when Rudy Ray found out that these people were going to stay in line an extra two hours till that first movie slot was over so that they could see the movie like at nine o'clock or whatever the case may be. Uh, he was like, wait, guys, I'm going to go out here and entertain them, man. They they came to see Dolomite, so I'm going to give them Dolomite. And he has a heartwarming moment where there's this kid who kind of looks up to him and is dressed like him a little bit and has some par- paraphernalia of Dolomite. And I think he signs it for the kid and him and the kid go back and forth exchanging quips and stuff like that, doing the whole Dolomite impression thing. And Dolomite kind of gives him the high five and gives an ode to the kid and the and the movie ends with him out there entertaining the people which is what he always wanted to do was just have that big stage to entertain the people so man with that being said this was a fantastic movie on Netflix I really loved this and this is one of those Netflix movies where if you have not seen this you need to see it there's a reason why Eddie Murphy is getting nominated for awards and there's a reason why people are talking about this being one of the better film best films of 2019 it's a great story it's got a lot of heart it's got a lot of energy it's hilarious Eddie it's got some great a great comeback virtuoso performance by Eddie Murphy and the message at the end about perseverance, trying hard, not giving up on your dreams is a welcome message for us to hear in today's times. So for all of those things, I can recommend this film. Uh, As far as the, the negatives of this film, I mean, maybe you could say in the second and the third act, there is a little bit of a lull when he's not really performing or doing any kind of comedic things that he's trying to sell the records and there is a lot of dialogue and talking and him going oh you know the the whoa it's me I can't get this record out further or whoa it's me I can't get this movie made and there are parts where it drags a little bit because they wanted to show the struggles of him and maybe those parts could have been shorter uh for that reason or he's got to confide in other characters and sometimes those other characters aren't as interesting as he is when he's performing or doing his whole Dolomite thing so sometimes you do miss that when he's confiding and talking to these other characters that just weren't as interesting but other than that there's very little to nitpick here this is a great film that I recommend to anybody especially if you follow Eddie Murphy you got to see this performance because I can say without a shadow of a doubt this is one of his better performances I'm going to give my name is Dolomite 92 Dolomite big hair afro wigs and colorful colorful three-piece suits out of 100 this was a solid a for me and it's one of the best acting performances of the year okay and the next movie that i wanted to talk about in this other mega edition of solo slayers is the irishman now this was directed by the great martin scorsese it stars robert de niro um joe pesci al pacino among others but of course those are the three main leads in this story and man i man this movie 
is three and a half hours long. And honestly, I loved almost every minute of it. I miss movies like this. This had such a godfather, goodfellas, mob epic feel to it. And just there's something about those movies that I just love. And of course, you know, The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. I'm not going to say anything about The Godfather 3, but those two are all-time classics. And Goodfellas is another um, all-time classic. And and these films, the, even though Martin Scorsese didn't direct all of them, uh, we know Francis Ford Coppola directed uh, the original Godfather and things like that. But these films are just epic in how they develop characters uh the, the 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 how you get to witness kind of the inner workings of organized crime the betrayals the 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 politics of it the decisions that characters have to make there's just nothing like watching a story like this and this is very much in that same spirit so if you're a person who enjoys movies like that goodfellas Casino, just the Godfathers, just whatever you're talking about, you are going to love this movie. And and a lot of people have already seen it. It's one of the, I think it's the fourth or fifth most viewed, most watched thing on Netflix thus far this year. So a lot of people have already seen it. But if you haven't, whether you need to take breaks or watch an hour for the next <laughs> for the next three days to get the three and a half hour runtime, whatever you need to do. Uh, uh, th- th- this is definitely one to watch. I mean, it-, it just gave me so many memories of how I enjoyed those movies. And these actors, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, I mean, come on. What more do I need to say? I mean, this is them in their wheelhouse, in their element, doing the kinds of movies that they do best. And, and-, and they are just great here. Uh Robert De Niro plays um, our 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 character name uh, Frank Sheeran, who is a truck driver in the 1950s in Pennsylvania, and uh, this is also based on a true story. So these characters existed. Frank Sheeran, played by uh, Robert De Niro, was a truck driver that 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 actually gets involved in organized crime when he becomes kind of a hitman for Russell Buffalino, who is played by Joe Pesci in this, which was interesting. I don't think that Pesci has ever played a mob boss. Normally, he isn't the boss. He's like somebody who is like... Normally, he's kind of one of the the helps of the side characters or a henchman, so to speak. So it was interesting to see him in this leadership role. But he was wonderful in this. Uh, Humanized that character when he needed to be humanized and about his business and had just such a grace and elegance about playing that character, but could also be very scary, very authoritative. But you got, you felt that relationship that he had with Frank Sheeran in this. So, uh, 
you you definitely get a sense of that and that he and, and and that their friendship is real and that he supports Frank and creates a lot of opportunities for Frank and Frank really rewards uh Buffalino and the rest of the Pennsylvania crime family with his loyalty and you get a sense of that throughout uh this movie and and the movie is just great and the scenes and the way that martin scorsese tells the story all of the vibrant colors the camera angles the music is just right his ability to the the editing of this film how it edits to build tension and I mean that there are just so many like wonderful scenes like that like there's a scene where you've got uh, Robert De Niro's character and Frank is getting ready to bomb this one place he gets um, a tip from uh, one of the locals who's also um, who he's friends with, who's also involved with the mob, but but he's kind of on the outside looking in. This is just an outside guy who does dealings with them from time to time. So somebody that Frank thought he could trust. And he says, hey, man, there's this laundromat place and I want you to blow that up. And just the way that this movie and of course, Frank agrees to this. He's trying to make a little more extra money and business has been a little bit dry. So he's trying trying to make a little extra money he hasn't been doing any hits and been been being paid by the main buffalino family so he agrees to do this to burn down this launder this laundry place so as he's getting ready to do that the camera is editing and cutting and it looks like he's gonna do this and you see him stalking the place and kind of uh, conceptualizing a plan and driving around kind of seeing how the place looks and it looks like he's going to do this and it perfectly cuts and edits a scene for you st- a play by play showing him scout the place showing him making a plan showing what he's going to do and he's about to do this thing this is going to happen and the movie just had a way of readying you for to see that like this is definitely something that's going to happen then uh, Joe Pesci and the rest of the Buffalino family, they stop him at the last minute. There's a conversation and he finds out that actually the Buffalino family has some stock into this place, that they actually are a partner with that laundry place. And that if he would have burnt it down, that would have been bad for the family and everybody. So, of course, uh Robert De Niro um, Frank is embarrassed and he's like oh I didn't know this and if I had known that I would have never done this and look let me make it right what can I do and um and, you know, one of the bosses is like you know you've already done enough and he looks at uh, at Joe Pesci or Russell in this uh, Russell Buffalino and he says man you are lucky that Russell here talked to me because I would have left you out hung you out to dry I would have let whatever happened to you happen to you but he is really your friend he saved your life and that was just one of the scenes that just really resonated and just gave you an idea of the friendship with Russell Buffalino and uh, Frank Sheeran so at different points in the film where they're older men and they're already and the time is coming gone and now they're just kind of old and still kind of running errands and um, Buffalino is Russell Buffalino is still like 
um, collecting payments and different things like that. But you understand from these past flashbacks that they show what kind of friendship this was, what kind of camaraderie this was. That just really comes across so you can understand why these people remain companions even in old age. Seen a lot together, done everything together. And it was moments like that where he saved his life so you could tell that there was a genuine camaraderie there with Frank and Russell in scenes like that. Uh, and again, just more scenes that kind of just uh, allowed Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro to shine. Um, another thing that was great about this movie, uh, and, I, and I'll just bounce around to just different things that I like because I don't want to just, it's hard to talk about a three hour, three and a half hour movie and kind of give you all these plot points, but I'll just bounce around to some things I like. But that was one thing I liked. I liked the development of that dynamic between Frank and um, and Russell Buffalino. Uh, another thing that was great about this is just that um, is all of the ways that Scorsese did things a little bit different in these mob epics. Like sometimes when you watch these mob epics and they're doing these horrible things, you 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 get the sense that sometimes they're just that the, the, they just lack a certain humanity and they really just kind of seem like animals in those moments sometimes and they really and, and sometimes it, it seems like you don't it's almost like it's played to be cool or you look at these characters and you go oh man they're cool or oh man he's ridiculous and he's about his business or oh man he's just a stone cold killer but whatever emotion they're trying to convey but oftentimes what you don't get to see a lot of is the aftermaths of that and 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 how and also how it can negatively affect family members and people around them like you you see some glimpses of it but a lot of times these movies tend to end on higher notes or a little more upbeat and everything like that one thing I will say about this film that I really appreciated and why it was one of my favorites that I watched this year is that Scorsese does some different things with this and you get to see some things that are not so great. You get to see uh, kind of the aftermath of this and it's not the best and it's and it's kind of sad and it doesn't really end with that cool upper that you're kind of used to seeing in some of these movies and one of those ideas that really just comes to light is the dynamic between um, Robert De Niro in this, uh, Frank and his daughter Peggy who's played by Anna Packin and or Anna Pekin Packin with one of those uh but but Anna uh, and of course uh if you don't know who she is she's been in a lot of movies over the years uh and and she's been in a lot of different things i mean the scream movies uh um, I, I mean, she's been in a ton of stuff. Anna Paquin has been is one of those actresses that has been around for a long time. The X-Men movies, uh, Emmy winning series, Bury My Heart at, um, uh, at Wounded Knee, uh, True Blood. She was also in that. She was um, in... Uh, I think I already mentioned the X-Men movies, uh, The Squid and the Whale. So Anna Paquin is one of those veteran actors who have been out a while. And she didn't have a lot of lines in this. She plays the older uh, 
um, the the older Peggy because we do skip back and forth. We go back in time to when she was a child and then we go forward when she was an adult. But the thing I can say about this Peggy character and what was so resonant to me is that Martin Scorsese does something in this that I don't believe he's done in a film. So there's a scene um, early on with Peggy as a child and basically uh, Peggy goes to this bread store and there's this baker and the baker and I guess she was acting up or tried to take something I forget what the situation was but the baker disciplined her and hit her and he either grabbed her wrist real hard or he may have slapped her on the wrist or something like that so she comes home crying and Frank finds out about this and this is after Frank has already he's already been introduced to Russell Buffalino he's already well in to organized crime so he's so he takes his daughter young peggy and he goes to this bakery and he proceeds to beat the living shit out of this baker for what he did to um his daughter and he's like are you gonna hit her again are you gonna ever talk to her like that again and he's stomping this guy just stomping him on the curb i think he breaks the guy's arm right in front of peggy and you have this scene and what is brilliant about this is not that Robert De Niro beats someone's ass in a crime mob epic. I mean, you're like, okay, so what else is new? But what is great about this is the aftermath. Whenever, uh, um, because you see this look on child Peggy's face and, ev- and, and from that day on, he traumatized his own daughter. So there are scenes where he's trying to connect with his daughter and she's not being responsive to him. She's uh, walking away from him. She's not giving him the time of day. And this behavior continues whenever we're Anna Pekin and we're older now. And you can see her having these similar behaviors and not wanting to talk to Frank and Frank is just trying to reconcile that and in his old age when we get to the later parts of the film and now he's older he's trying to reconcile with his daughter and he just can't get that face-to-face meeting with her and uh and Frank and, and he had two daughters actually so there was an a, a sister also and the sister that that didn't get to see the bakery incident she's got a better relationship with frank and there's just this poignant scene where the sister is just telling him she's not going to meet you she's not going to talk to you and she says i mean you just don't understand how hard it was for us growing up whenever we had a problem with someone whenever we had a problem with a boy or whenever some situation would come up we were always afraid that you were going to hurt someone we could never talk to you about anything because we were afraid of what you were going to do and the look on Robert De Niro's face just the way that he absorbs this information as Frank and the the look of disdain 
the look of hurt and the realization that he had traumatized his daughter ever since that incident with the baker. He traumatized his daughter. She saw him as a monster and that view never changed despite all the years of living in that house, despite him being able to provide for her. The fact that that's what he was and he was this monster. He lost his daughter the moment he went off on that baker. And this isn't a film where she winds up visiting him or anything like that. He never gets his daughter back. And I just thought that was very sad, but it was so wonderful for Scorsese to do something like that in his films, because up until now, I don't believe I've seen that perspective in a mob epic. Yes, they do things and they affect other people, but nothing like that where a child is traumatized and then they never really recover from that. Because normally the I'm going to beat someone's ass for a woman or for a child or for a daughter type of scene in these mob movies is normally played as a cool scene or it's seen as endearing or a man beating another man's ass and for the honor of a daughter or a wife or something. Normally it's just played differently or the wife is turned on by it. Kind of like the pistol whip scene in Goodfellas where the, 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 the girlfriend was kind, the girl was turned on by it and it led to Ray Liotta's character actually getting with her and them eventually becoming married and stuff like that. Normally that's how that scene is played. But to me, it showed a real maturity in Scorsese's work to have it end up that way. So I appreciated the realness of that. And there have been complaints that Anna Paquin, given her talent and everything, should have had more to say. She should have had um, something more to do with this film. And, and, you know, maybe it would have been cool if instead of the other sister telling uh, Robert De Niro this, maybe it would have been cool if Anna Paquin as Peggy could have gotten to confront him and speak her truth herself. But I like this because you don't always get that. You don't always get to have that conversation. And this felt a lot more realistic. And it showed that even that scene had consequences. And I just love that. And that was one of the few scenes uh, one of the, I'm sorry, the many scenes that was like this in this movie that I just really appreciated about Scorsese's storytelling. Things seem to have consequences. Later on in the film, we're introduced to uh, Jimmy Hoffa, who's played by Al Pacino. And Al Pacino, man, he's great in this. And Al Pacino is, is, is one of those actors. And I know that we did kind of an out of love episode and I mentioned that Al Pacino that a lot of times he's playing this kind of same character this angry guy he speaks in this certain tone and I kind of was wondering man you know is Al Pacino a little overrated I kind of actually raised some questions about that in an earlier episode but I will admit this is Al Pacino's wheelhouse. This is the kind of stuff that he does best. This is the kind of stuff, the material that made him famous. And Al Pacino shines here as Jimmy Hoffa, this charismatic uh, man, the, the, this uh, charismatic um, union, labor union leader, 
um, who was also trying to run for office at that time. And he befriends uh, Frank and Frank kind of goes under his wing and is one of his protectors because Hoffa's got um, ties to that Buffalino, Pennsylvania mob family. So, uh, so that's, this is how Frank and Hoffa meet and they strike up a friendship and Frank is there for a lot of what Jimmy Hoffa goes through, trying to win the appeal of the public, the stuff happening with the labor unions, the cops down their throat, looking for evidence of bribery and organized crime and different things like that. So these two share a bond and it's a good bond and the, and the humanity of these characters really comes out in those moments and they really do have some genuine moments ironically Jimmy Hoffa is the opposite of Frank in this and that he has a great reputation with the locals and the people in Pennsylvania so uh, Hoffa when he whenever he has a speech he's very charismatic he speaks in an angry determined voice which you know like I said is right up Al Pacino's alley and he wins over a lot of people and he's very popular amongst the people for his views and one of the and he's also uh and he knows and even though he's in organized crime he's smart he knows how to keep appearances he knows how to act like he's for people but still doing all this underhanded shit um in the crime underworld and so that was a great dynamic to kind of show how these people willed and deal and were clever enough to do this but yet still have a stellar reputation among people so it kind of showed both sides of that the fandangle and he was able to do with that and ironically um frank's daughter peggy had an affinity for him and their scenes whenever he was interacting with young Peggy or talking to her or anything like that and De Niro uh, Frank would see them interacting together and how she looked up to him and would watch his speeches and stuff like that and it was almost like she was making Frank pay for that for 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 that trauma that she had experienced earlier in her life and she was just looking for a fatherly figure looking for someone who seemed like a good person and who helped people and stuff like that and she would say things to Frank and 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 the and, and his wife like well, Jimmy Hoffa protects people and he's for the people and he helps people and he's a good man and all this other stuff. And and it's just so funny how you could see uh, De Niro, the hurt in his face and how he would shake his head and go, oh, yeah, D- Jimmy Hoffa's great, knowing the whole time that he was just as bad or worse than Frank. But uh, and, and having his daughter see him as more of a father figure than him, you know, uh, that had to hurt him. And it showed in the acting and it didn't have to be told to you, but you just saw it in the acting that De Niro was able to do. So I can't say enough about De Niro's performance in this. And it really does drive this three and a half hour movie. Um, and of course, as we move on in the story, um, unfortunately, Jimmy Hoffa does have to spend some time in jail. He gets caught. He goes, he has to spend some time in jail, gets pardoned by Richard Nixon, which all of this happened, by the way. I actually went back and looked up some stuff on Hoffa. And a lot of this 
that that was in the film did actually happen in real life. He was pardoned by Richard Nixon and tried to get back into office. And it looked like he actually did come up missing and they never found the body. And he was supposed to meet some of these guys involved in organized crime and he never came back. So the 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 consensus is that he got whacked and 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 Frank um, even though they're friends and even though they have this bond, um, the, the, the mob order is once a Hoffa gets too big for his britches, the order is lent, is handed down. And now they're telling Frank, look, we need you to end Jimmy Hoffa. And it's one of those things where he's conflicted. He doesn't want to do this. But this man, Frank, is loyal to a fault. He is loyal to the cause. He is loyal to this mafia family. And so he agrees to do this. And even though you could tell he did it reluctantly, you could tell this is going to hurt him because he considered Hoffa a friend. He decides to do it. And they go through this meticulous plan and there's this back and forth and there's some great camera editing and cutting and storytelling here that Scorsese does where Jimmy Hoffa gets in this car and he's not sure. You can tell that he doesn't quite trust the situation that's happening and he goes back and forth and he's led into this room and you think it's going to happen there but then it doesn't happen and then uh, finally he's led to this house and um, him and Frank are together they kind of have a moment together and Frank is just you can just tell he he's um, just uh, he knows he's going to have to kill this guy and it's just on his face and it's in their interactions and uh, he leads Jimmy Hoffa to this room and then it happens. He shoots Hoffa. And um, that was just one of the scenes that really just resonated in the film and the back and forth of is it going to happen? Isn't it going to happen? What is this character going to do? What is Frank going to do? It really plays some great back and forth there with the camera and the storytelling. And I think it just really puts that moment over in the film. Um um, also, and then as we get to and we move to the end of this movie, um, we also get to see these characters um, in old age. So we have all these flashbacks and we go back and forth between them being old and everything. But eventually we get to the end where Frank is ultimately by himself. The other uh, mob people have passed on. Joe Pesci's character, Buffalino, is gone as well. And he's just by himself and he tries to reconcile with his daughter, but he hears from his sister. I had talked about that scene earlier. And ultimately, this man just winds up being alone. And there's just this very poignant scene at the end of this where he's you know, the guy, the priest is talking to him about, do you regret these things and what you did and different things like that? And he still doesn't want to talk about what happened. And he still doesn't want to rat out his his organized crime brothers and this family that he sort of made um, being involved in that world. And there are these uh, criminologists and people that come to him and they're like, look, man. You're not going to do any time in jail. There's no chance of you going to jail. You're already in your old age. All of these people are dead. There's no way we can indict these people or arrest these people. Why don't you just tell us 
what happened and why don't you get these stories down so that we can at least know what they did. Maybe we can try to locate some of these bodies and bring closure to some of these people who had died and at least tell their families about it and different things like that. And he doesn't give up anything, even when his friends are dead. This Irish truck driver, Frank, <laughs> um, doesn't give anybody up. Even in death, he holds his oath. He, he stays beholden to that code and is loyal to his dying days. And there's just something kind of endearing about that even though he's a bad person not saying he didn't deserve to be alone at the end and that's ultimately what he got he had lost his daughter he had kind of lost his family in the end and winds up being by himself but there was just something sort of endearing about the code that he kept and at the end of the film there's just this poignant scene where uh, it's christmas and nobody's there he's not spending the holiday with anyone and uh, and you can just tell that death's door is knocking and he's an old man at this point in a wheelchair and everything. And he's talking to this priest and this priest kind of just does a little ceremonial kind of prayer thing for him and leaves him. And he says, hey, can you leave that door slightly open? And the shot that Scorsese gets where we're kind of floating away from Frank, old Frank in this wheelchair, and he's just staring out this door. And it's almost like that feeling, and he's by himself, and it's just this real sad, quiet scene. And you just know that nobody is coming to that through that door. And you just know that this is a man that was loyal, but he is going to die alone for that loyalty. And there's just something poignant about that. There was something beautiful about that and dark and sad. And it was everything that this needed to be in the end. So, again, I can't um, compliment enough Scorsese's storytelling and the actors in this. The acting in this is just really, really top notch from all involved, especially Robert De Niro. I expect to see him around awards time and even um, uh, Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa wouldn't be surprised if he pops up as a supporting actor in um, come awards time and everything like that. And the last thing I'll say about it is, um, you know, as far as negatives, this film is a three and a half hour long movie. So if you um, are someone who... Um, doesn't have the patience for that or long movies and things like that. This is long. I mean, I myself kind of had to watch two hours of it, kind of had to take a break, did my Christmas celebration stuff, and then I came back later that Christmas night and finished it. But even I had to kind of take a little intermission. But but to me, it was intriguing throughout. The storytelling is great. And uh, with it being a three and a half hour movie, of course, there are going to be scenes that drag. There are going to be scenes where it slows down for the sake of character development. Um, also, another dislike is just sometimes 
loves the de-aging CGI because there are times where we had to go back in time. So we had to kind of de-age Robert De Niro and uh, Al Pacino in this film uh, and Joe Pesci in this film. And even though for the most part, the de-aging, I didn't have too much of a problem with it. I think at times it looked just fine. But these men are getting older and, you know, sometimes you can de-age a face and skin and different things like that, but you can't de-age actions and the way people walk and different things like that. And you can just tell that these men are older and everything like that. So sometimes the de-aging, even though that was there, you could just tell that these men are having a little bit of a harder time moving around and it ha- it's going to happen to everybody. But I can't say it, 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 it. And for the most part, it's not anything terribly noticeable, but you do notice it at times. So, um, y- y- you know, it just goes to show that uh, <clears throat> that 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 even with the de-aging technology, it, it couldn't fix everything as far as that. Um, but uh, but but again, those negatives are not deal breakers. I really think that this was an excellent film, one of the best films of the year, especially when you talk about all of the powerhouse acting in it. And Robert De Niro gives probably one of the greatest performances of his career. So I'm definitely going to recommend this. Check this out on Netflix. Watch an hour and a half take an intermission, and then watch the next hour and a half. That That's probably the best way to get through this three and a half hours of moviness, but uh, I am going to recommend it. I'm going to give The Irishman 94, um, <laughs> 94 pieces of bread flying out of a bakery as you beat a baker's ass out of and traumatize your daughter out of 100 94 out of 100 this is very good definitely a better film than the recent movies that Scorsese has made and directed okay and the final film that I wanted to spend some time talking about today is Little Women. Uh, this is a film that was uh, released recently. I believe it came out uh, Christmas week. So that that was around the time that this was released. Um, and, and of course, this is based. There have been several different movie versions of this. And I know that this is a popular book. So I I know this is based on a popular book and it's had several different versions. So and I haven't seen any of those uh, other versions of this film and I never read this book. But man, if this but but I can understand why this is popular. I can understand why this film, uh, why this story, I'm sorry, continues to be remade and done several times and things like that. This was a remarkable movie and I really just enjoyed this. I mean, this was really one of the more enjoyable movies that I saw this holiday season and I just have to talk about it. So here's some thoughts on Little Women. Now, first of all, this is directed by Greta Gerwig and Greta Gerwig, I mean, she is becoming something of, I mean, she is becoming um, somebody who you need to watch out for and be a fan of. Uh, I saw Lady Bird and Lady Bird 
was a wonderful movie. It was well acted. And Greta Gerwig just had such a great sense of of comedic timing with that film. The dialogue was spot on and it was very like realistic and emotional. It felt like you were there. You were in the story with these people and uh, Cerise Ronan who plays Lady Bird in that film just does a wonderful acting job. And she was just wonderful as this Lady Bird, this, teenager who's going through all these things and has this angst and she's about to graduate and she's a senior and you know it was really a lot about um taking those next few steps in life and how hard that can be with no direction and she's got these turbulent relationships with her parents and her mother and it there's a back and forth there with her and Laurie Metcalf who plays Marion and it's just a great film and I love the dialogue and I love the direction of that Lady Bird film. So when I found out that Greta Gerwig was directing Little Women and that uh, Cerise Ronan was going to be one of the characters in it, I was like, uh-oh, I know about that tag team. I know about that Gerwig, Cerise Ronan tag team. I'm going to have to check this movie out. And I'm glad that I did because, again, Greta Gerwig in this Little Women movie, she is just such an awesome director when it comes to emotional storytelling like this. She does a lot of great things with the camera to really get you into the emotion of the film. There are a lot of great picturesque scenes in this film where characters are just um and landscapes where characters are walking down um just a grassy plain and it just looks great it just looks wonderful um there are scenes where the characters are when when the dialogue is there and the characters are talking to each other that that you, you just feel like they're flesh and bones it doesn't feel like these are manufactured it doesn't feel like well they're saying this because this is the part where the film jokes about something or this is the part where no man all of these acting performances just feel great all of them and and the dialogue is just so spot on that you're just intrigued throughout I mean, you just can't help but be intrigued by what you're seeing. And I think that that really is um, the triumph of the the film. And w with any movies like this kind of uh, coming of age period drama, if you want to uh, call it that, um, if, if you want to, yeah, um, call it that 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 is really what this is so um and and so when you're meeting these characters and they're going through certain periods in their life and that's what this is we're kind of chronicling four sisters and it's just them coming of age so they start young but it's about growing up into adulthood and some of the hardships that come with that and and the sisters that i'm talking about here is the march family we've got joe march played by Cerise Ronan. Emma Watson um, is also in this. And she's Meg March and then Florence Pugh as Amy March and then Elisa Scanlon as Beth uh, March. 
all four of these women really bring it in this film. They the 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 relationship that they have and the sisterhood that they have, it feels so warm and genuine. There are a lot of scenes where they are together and get to interact with each other and whether they are it, um acting out some play that Joe March wrote or um, or Meg or their surrounding Meg March as she's trying on dresses or going to different uh, um, functions or acting out something in a play or whether um, Amy is painting and they're sitting there um, watching her paint some model or some landscape. The, it, the, the, their relationship is just wonderful. And the way that they go about showcasing this relationship that these sisters have is great. And whether they're bickering at each other or whether they're just sharing genuine moments, you feel all of it. Like it's just so well acted. And I was so intrigued by every sister. There wasn't one sister where I didn't care about what they were doing or I didn't not want to see what they were up to. So whenever one is on screen, you miss the other ones. You want to see the other ones. And luckily, uh, Greta Gerwig knew what she was doing because most, a lot of, there are a lot of scenes where we get all four of them on scene, on screen. And that's really where this movie shines is when you just get to see the interactions and the bond between sisters. Another person that was great though in this film was Laura Dern as Marmy March, who, who is the mother of these four um, sisters. And she's just such a great mother here. She's very, um, you can just tell she's very strong in her love for them and she supports them and she wants them. She understands that they are her children and she takes care of them. But she also is a woman that is trying to teach them good values and she wants them to make their own decisions and she wants them to kind of have their own individuality and figure things out on their own. And it's never anything that this character says, but you get that in all of the interactions that she has with the sisters and everything that she does and instills upon them. Laura Dern was just wonderful here. And Laura Dern is somebody who, man, I, I don't, I mean, I, I haven't paid attention to her before, but this year she has really impressed me with whether it was me watching her her in Big Little Lies, or it was me um, watching her in Marriage Story as this lawyer, or this film as a mother. Laura Dern is really somebody who is becoming someone that I like to see. And I can't say enough about the great year that she had this year and the movies that she was in. So bravo to you, Laura Dern. You've been, you killed it in 2019 as a supporting character. No matter if there was a supporting character MVP award, you should definitely have that. Um, and there are other familiar faces that you'll notice if you um, watched Lady Bird. Uh, Timothy Chalamet returns here as uh, as um, as a uh, Laurie, 
and he's one of the guys who's tied in with the sisters and he becomes a kind of a love interest for Joe March and then eventually that doesn't work out and he actually winds up marrying Amy March in this film but he was also great here whenever he had scenes with the sisters they were resonant and they were good and he was always good about showing how he loved them and cared for them and especially someone like Joe and how he loved her but just couldn't quite what have that conversation with her couldn't quite get the words out when he needed to and wanted that but you could just tell it wasn't being reciprocated and he was good at showing whatever emotion he needed to show at different points in the story he was able to show that so I liked him I thought that he was great in this Bob Odenkirk you know, you better call Saul. Uh, Saul himself from Breaking Bad and you better call Saul was in this as Father March. And he's not in it for uh, much of the film. The most of the film, a lot of the film, we don't get to see him because he was away um, uh, at war and different things like that. And he was like out. Um, and at one point he gets sick and Laura Dern's character go leaves to take care of him and the sisters are kind of fending for themselves. But um, so we don't get to see a lot of him. But I think that was necessary and that was a good decision. Um, and if that's in the book, great. But it was a good decision by by the director to for us to not have him. Um, in the first hour, hour and a half of this film because we needed to be missing him. We needed to not have him there so that we could be in the same shoes as these characters. And when he finally does come and the scenes that he gets with them and the scenes that he gets with Laura Dern, I think that Bob Odenkirk did a great job here too. So I really enjoyed him as well. And this story is great how it kind of just every, all four of these sisters just have their own individual journeys like Cerise Ronan's character Joe March she's uh, uh, wants to publish this book and she's trying to write this book and she's a storyteller and she has all these ideas and she's writing and um, so there's a struggle with this character to get those um, ideas on paper and she falls in and out of writer's block and loses her motivation and this story really allows her to regain that motivation and eventually get everything published and she's got her own personal journey that she deals with and she wants to be this strong female wants to be this strong woman but at the same time she has her own individuality and doesn't want to be um, defined by a male relationship and yes some of this stuff you could say could get really cliche or corny or cheesy or preaching but it never ever ever comes off like that and it feels genuine and her performance is so good that you just believe that Emma Watson's character um trying to fit in early on and 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 wanting to have a husband and she marries um a guy who isn't well off and it's about that struggle and even though he isn't well off it's about her struggle to be a good wife and to be a good sister and how and how that would make her happy and her want to have a family and everything like that. And even though um, some of the other sisters had other ambitions for her, like Joe wanted her to be an actress and everything like that, even it showed how her journey was equally important just even though Joe didn't want that family life, her wanting that family life and wanting it with the right person was still a worthwhile journey. So I'm glad that they had 
um, that, 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 that they showcased it in there, that her desires and wants to have a family didn't make her less of a character because Joe kind of had this more, I want to be independent and I want to publish my my stories approach to her character. And then Florence Pugh is Amy in this. Um, Amy's story as this artist and this painter and trying to, um, and, and yet um, still having that pressure to marry the right person and to marry rich so that you can take care of your family and different things like that. And they have a grandmother in this, uh, Meryl Streep, who um, who plays their aunt in this. And Meryl Streep was also wonderful in this. She comes off as this real, just hard-nosed, just real blunt, real practical aunt who tries to tell it like it is. Look, if you get get with these poor guys and they don't have anything, you're not going to have anything. And out here in the world, a woman can't make it unless she has those resources. There's not a lot of opportunities out here for women and you need to think about that. So who you marry matters and everything like that. And it's one of those characters where even though you don't agree with all of her opinions or at least I didn't, I was like, man, why you got to be like that Meryl Streep? But but the aunt was telling the truth in some ways and she wasn't necessarily wrong about those times and everything like that. So they found a way to even make her and she wasn't just one of those aunts or characters that's like, I'm just going to say rude stuff and, and, and mean stuff the whole time and I'm never going to have any moments of humanity or levity. They didn't do that with this character. She has some very genuine moments and moments where she really Really helps the sisters and resonates with them and uh, they have some great interactions too so I liked Meryl Streep in this and I mean what, what what is Meryl Streep not good in but it almost goes without saying but I still had to uh, give her some props in this um, and, and as this story plays out uh, and then uh, the last sister Beth uh, March uh, Eliza Scanlon is great in this too and unfortunately this is the sister that gets sick in the story and a lot of time is spent taking care of her and things like that but she's also very like whimsical and has um, some very eccentric and funny ways about her and she's just kind of that sister that's a little off and she's extremely blunt and has no filter and just kind of says what she's thinking and Every family, I'm sure, has a person like that. But I thought that she was great here as kind of this truth teller kind of sister that would just say, I mean, just the thing that you just don't expect her to say, she says. Like, she's talking to this guy in this one scene and she's like, oh yeah, I have exceptional feet. I have really nice feet. And so you're like, huh? Like, would you say that in that situation? But this character, Beth, Yes, she would say that. And then there's another scene later on where she's making, she's got her foot in this mold and she's making a clay-like mold of her foot. And she's like, I'm going to make a mold of my foot so that um, so that he knows just how, so when I send it to him, he'll know just how exceptional my feet still are. And it's just stuff like that that is just so great. And she was just so funny and really brought 
some levity and some comedy to the a lot of the scenes and the dynamics with the other sisters without it ever feeling cheap or corny or unwarranted or just over the top. So I appreciated her too. And overall, not to say too much about it, but you know, we follow these sisters as they're young. We follow them as they have God trouble and deal with society and also deal with their talents and how to relate that to the world and what to pursue and what not to pursue. All of those things are carefully crafted in this film. And then when we get to adulthood, we have some resolutions to those things. We have some that get married and some that don't. You have some that wind up uh, finding love in unexpected places. And then unfortunately, you have one that has an untimely death and how that affects the family. And even that scene is very sad. It's emotional. It gets across what it needs to get across. And I mean, this film, just gives you every emotion. It, it, it has sad points that, that feel poignant. You laugh at the times you're supposed to. It's got that dramatic depth and these characters really feel like flesh and blood characters. They're well-rounded and the acting performances are just a joy to behold. So I really enjoyed this film and there's nothing really much to pick apart here, man. I can't think of just one negative thing that I disliked about this film. I guess if I'm going to nitpick and say one thing about it, there are scenes where when it's jumping back and forth, because sometimes we jump back and forth and we're younger or we're kids or we're after or we're post wedding or we're after a wedding takes place and different things like that. And there were times where I wasn't quite sure where we were in the timeline. So sometimes I could say that sometimes the jumping from scene to scene, there were times where I was like, wait a second, where are we? Then I would have to wait for some dialogue or something to happen or one of them, or I would see one of the sisters who was supposed to be dead alive and go, oh, okay, we're back in time. You know, but sometimes I'm not going to lie. It took a moment for me to kind of realize where we were in the timeline. So if I was going to nitpick anything, I would just say some of the jump cutting between the past and the present and stuff like that. It wasn't uh, sometimes it just wasn't quite clear where we were. And I had to kind of play catch up to get that back. And I don't know if that was more just me uh, or an inability to I just didn't catch things or if it was just the way it was edited. But that could be one thing is just that sometimes with the back and forth cutting back in time, it was hard to tell what period we were in at times. But other than that, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. This was a great movie that I would recommend to everybody, especially if you're somebody who is a fan of this book or this work. And yeah, I, I get that this is Little Women and this is about females and everything like that. So yes, th th there is some of that. And oh, is this a chick flick? Am I a guy? Would I enjoy this? But honestly, I would recommend this for anybody despite that. I think that the that Greta Gerwig is, the, is one of the up and coming next great directors. Uh, she did a great job with Lady Bird and this is another great job. And I really feel like um, she did this material justice because I'm not going to lie to you. 
I walked out, I enjoyed this so much and it just flows by and it flowed so well and it was just such a well-told story and it was so satisfying in the end that I walked away going, man, I may not have read any uh, anything about this Little Women book. I may not know who this author is. I may not have seen any of the other versions of this film. But but the story was so good, I can definitely understand and appreciate why Little Women is popular. So with that being said, I highly recommend this Little Women. It may be have little in the title, but this was very big in my heart. And I do think that this is one of the most worthwhile movies to see, has solid performances and just probably one of the best made films of the year. As far as pound for pound, the story, the levity, the character development, balancing all of those things and telling just a satisfying real story that felt real and had substance. I think this is definitely one of those front runners for the year. So I do expect to see this maybe for screenplay or acting whenever we get to awards time. Wouldn't be surprised to see this pick up something for screenplay or for directing for Greta Gerwig. It, it, this was great. So with that being said, I'm going to give this 95 sisters wrestling along the ground as they fight over the fact that none of them are prim, proper, and girly out of 100. And 95 is has kind of been the score that I reserve for stuff that I really like. So this is one of the highest reviews that I've given a film. You should definitely check out Little Women. And with that being said, Cinefans, that's going to wrap it up for me and this uh, and this other mega edition of Solo Slayers. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Cinema Slayers Podcast, and let us know what you thought of these films or what you thought of these Netflix features and films, I guess I should say. Let us know what you're thinking out there. You can also check us out on our Twitter, uh, Cinema underscore Slayers. Our Instagram, also Cinema underscore Slayers. There's also the website, CinemaSlayers.com, where you can get updates. Um, uh, we've got written reviews on there of movies. We've got links to our different, to different media forums where our podcasts are. And also you can check out podcast links and things like like that on our Cinema Slayers Facebook as well. And we also put links to that to our podcast in there, as well as on our Twitter and Instagram. We always share these things or retweet these things and have our links. So let us know what you're thinking. And when you see these movies, come back and let us know. Did you agree? Did you disagree? Um, or if you've already seen them, I know we do a lot of spoiler reviews and things like that. So when you watch these movies, come back and let it and listen to our podcast and let us know. Hey, I agreed. I disagreed. Or I wish you would have expounded on this. Or I wish that you would review a film like this. Let us know how we can be better and um, and let us know what we can do for you. We try to put this content out there for you guys so you can listen and have a good time with us. So we hope we're doing that thus far and just continue to let us know what you're thinking about the movies. And I promise you this, we will continue to churn out the content and we will continue to let you know what's going on in all cinema here at Cinema Slayers. <laughs>